Welcome to The Antidote, a podcast that interviews women and gender-marginalised writers in a place of personal significance to them. I'm Rosanna Stevens, and we're boarding a train from Broadway out to Queens, New York, to meet this episode's guest. Matt Lubchansky is the associate editor of political satire, journalism and non-fiction comic site and publisher The Nib. And they're a cartoonist and illustrator in their own right. Their work has appeared in New York Magazine, Vice, Playboy, Eater, Mad Magazine, Gothamist, The Toast, The Hairpin, Brooklyn Magazine, and their long-running webcomic, Please Listen to Me. They have an extremely followable Instagram, featuring a regular feed of new comic panels, and they're also the co-author of Dad Magazine. Oh, and they have a Patreon, so there'll be a link to that in the show notes. Matt met me at the front door of their apartment and led me past their kitchen and living room into the studio where they work. I'm not going to describe the room because Matt gives a detailed profile of their workspace about eight minutes into our conversation. Instead, I'm going to describe the highlight of this episode for me because there's one bit of this interview that I swear I have come back to repeatedly over the years since we sat down together. And it's because Matt gives a piece of extremely, I want to say utilitarian advice that's supposed to just be about comics, but I've ended up applying it to many aspects of my life. Matt explains that when they are coming up with a comic or when they're editing a comic for the nib, they ask why the thing that's being made needs to be a comic. So like what it is that means that a comic is the best form to present the story that they are developing in. This was a revelation to me. Since then, I have asked myself this question of form about this podcast, and it's pushed me to rely a lot more on the unique benefits of an audio story over making this show, say, a written piece, for example. Sometimes I've asked myself what it is that makes me doing a particular project the best person for the project to involve, and sometimes I'm not the best person for the clearest and most successful iteration of the project, and the project needs another person on board to make it make sense. I've asked myself how moving interstate is the most logical move from my hometown, why it is the most necessary form for the project of my life to take at this stage of my career. It's it's been like the secret, but it's Matt Lubchansky's The Secret, and they shared it with me in their studio in Queens. The other secret Matt shared with me was how to make a good egg. Matt Lipchansky. That's me. What makes a great boiled egg? Oh, uh, I think like a a perfect uh, like jammy consistency is really important. You don't want it to be like too dry. You know, for years I thought I didn't like hard boiled eggs because I was eating the ones that my parents made. And they were just like chalk and like green from being overcooked. Yes. Yeah. Also, the eggs in America are really crappy. You might have noticed this. Well, I'm actually, okay, confession. Mm -hmm. I don't like whole eggs. They taste too sulfuric for me. I can have it scrambled in something or I can have it in like, you know, special fried rice or I can even have like a Korean style pancake. Yeah. But the moment that I get some whole egg in something, some proper whole egg, I'm not interested. Really? Mm. Um, I love a whole egg. But anyways, the main thing. The main difference, not one of the main food differences between America and the rest of the world, is the eggs are horrible here. They they pasteurize them. I can't remember what the exact methodology for pasteurizing eggs is here. You'll notice that eggs in America are kept in fridges. Yes. Because the shells don't do their jobs because they've been pasteurized, oh, so they're really they've thin. Been washed right. It's weird. So like the rest of the world, everyone keeps their eggs out on the counter. Not America. They go in the fridge. 
I have seen that. And in yeah. Australia, people do keep their eggs in the fridge. And I know oh, that really? it's good to have your egg in the fridge if you're going to make like a pavlova or any kind of meringue because <laughs> it makes it easier for the white to stiffen and oh. become foamy. Interesting. This is great to know. Yeah. For all the pavlovas I'll be making. This is the second time today I've heard the word pavlova. When was the first time? We were talking about what to make for Thanksgiving. Pav made. And my, and my, uh, my partner's mom is making a pavlova. And I was like, what the hell is that? Stella. This is like an hour ago. <laughs> Everyone's got pavlovas on the brain. This is meant to be. Yeah. It's the universe, Truth. man. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> Matt, will you talk to me about the first time you can remember making something that you would classify a cartoon or illustration? Ooh. Okay. Let's see. So I think... When I was 10 or 11, I was really, really into cartoons and comics. Where my family was, we were like halfway between New York and Hartford, Connecticut. And for some reason, we got both broadcast channels of every broadcast network. So I got two versions of Fox, one from New York and one from Hartford. And they both had an hour of The Simpsons every day, but on different hours. So every day I got two hours of (laughs) watching cartoons every night I would watch this. It was uh, a little excessive, but I was really into that. And I read a lot of newspaper comics every day. Uh, and when I was like 11 or 12, I just, or maybe 10 or 11, I started just drawing a lot. But in terms of like drawing an actual, like a cartoon with like a narrative or a joke or something in it, uh, yeah, probably around 11 or 12 is my, uh, my parents got me a drafting table one Hanukkah instead of making me go outside, which I always thank them for. Happy Hanukkah. Yeah, it was very good. It was like a crappy little drafting table that I had until, oh, I don't know, three years ago. Wow. Like it was still my drawing table for years because uh, it was, it folded up and it was really it was just very uh, handy because I kept moving, but I finally stopped moving and now I have a big desk but <laughs> that we're currently sitting at. But uh, I did a lot of like copying of comics that I liked. Around then I was generating a lot of really, really, really bad single panel gag strips that I'd like show to my mom and she wouldn't understand them because they weren't good. <laughs> and they would have, you know, like a paragraph of text in a single. It's not good. I had to learn later that you had to cut down on the words for a single panel to work. I want to talk to you about structuring and editing your own work yeah. briefly soon. But you mentioned the desk that we're at now. Yeah. Would you describe the room that we're in? Oh, sure. We're in the uh, the second bedroom in my in my partner Jaya's apartment in Queens uh, in Astoria. We've lived here for a couple of years now. There's a desk that takes up most of the room and then the uh, shelf with all my comics, like trade paperbacks and comic collection stuff and a big printer. We got more books on the other wall. Uh, this room is filled with cardboard boxes of uh, crap I need to sell uh, and too many guitars and a big American flag for my partner's grandparents' farm that only has uh, 49 stars on it because it, it's from like the the six months you can get one of those before between Alaska and Hawaii. Historical equipment. Yeah, it's really important. You have something that you could probably take on my favorite show, Antique Roadshow. Antique Roadshow, yeah. Mm-hmm. They would have a story for it. You'd already know the story. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Yeah. Like, I don't know how how often these flags were available because it only, like, those two states got added really close to each other. I don't know. But there's a gigantic American flag in here, which I always think is funny. Also, the walls are a soft, soft blue. And we have a view of the street outside. We're actually high up, high-ish up for Queens. This is the highest I've ever lived. The fifth floor. Yeah. What's the lowest you've ever lived? Uh, I lived in a first floor apartment one year in college, I think, which was weird. 
What was weird about it? It's just being on the street and like bars on your windows, that kind of stuff. And I used to be, I grew up in like the middle of nowhere. Um, and I was like not used to street noises and I couldn't sleep very well. Uh, now I go back to my parents' house and I can't fall asleep because it is too quiet. Really? Yeah. Gosh. My first New York apartment was on Lexington Avenue on the Upper East Side. That part of Lexington Avenue and that part of the Upper East Side is like the only place that trucks go at night for some reason. Uh, I don't know why, but it was just like, I was on the second floor there and it was just all night, semi-trucks going by my window every night. In the first like three months, I just like didn't sleep. And now I'm just like, it's like white noise to me. When you first moved, mm-hmm. were you also working from your apartment? No. So I used to, well, yes and no. So when I first moved to New York, it was right after, uh, so I went to engineering school actually and um, in Boston. And then I moved home for about a year because I, I got a job near my parents' house. So I was living at home, working for a year, just like saving up money. And then I was like, I can't, I don't live around here anymore. So I moved to New York and I kept that job because I couldn't find a new job because it was 2007 when no one could find a job. And I was just lucky to have one period. Uh, and I was looking for a new job for like five years and commuting to Connecticut from New York, which was God awful and working this engineering job that I couldn't stand around. Then I, I started taking, I'd sort of like stopped doing comics in college because I had submitted to the college paper to do comics. I didn't take it. And I got very discouraged because they were running some uh, crap to be frank. Uh, <laughs> Would you describe any of the stuff they were running? My only recollection of it is that it was is a, a comic about a burrito that wore boxing gloves. Garbage. Awful. Awful stuff, really. And I'm still salty about it. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I'm like, I'm doing okay now. I like I have a career in comics, which is like... Cool, I guess. It's, it's, not, but... it's, it's like a... I feel like if I had spoken to myself 10 years ago now, they would be very happy about where I'm at with my career. But I'm still mad about the burrito. Oh, but I, I moved, uh, so I started taking comics uh, seriously again. I took some night classes at the School of uh, Visual Arts in Manhattan, and I started doing comics uh, at night and on the weekends. So I was working from home at that crappy drafting table in a very small apartment. The whole bedroom, I remember, was like maybe 10 foot by 10 foot. Uh, it's like three meters for those. Thank you. Australian, yeah. Uh, for those in the South and also the British. Also those, pretty much everyone except, except America, Americans. Yeah. I have an Australian coworker that I argue a lot about. Uh, the superiority <laughs> of the imperial system for things like human comfort, which I will die on this hill a thousand times. We can get into it. Yeah. Truly. Like a foot is like a thing that's like, I understand what a foot is. My foot is actually a foot. So it's like very handy. Well, that's convenient it's really for convenient. you. It's really great for me. <laughs> And like, anyways, I'm not going to get into this. My room was like 10 foot by 10 foot. I had this bed. I had a a dresser that you had to sit on the bed to open because there wasn't enough room to stand there. And then I had a drafting table and then enough room for a desk chair that I had to pick up and put in my bed if I wanted to access my closet. And I was paying an an absorbent amount of money because I needed to live near Grand Central because I was commuting to Connecticut every day. It was awful. But I was up at night uh, drawing comics in this little table. And then I, I had a second apartment. We moved to Queens after that. And then, uh, me and Jaya moved in together and I was like up at night doing comics for years while she was like sleeping in the bed, like literally inches from where I was drawing with headphones on, like late into the night, every night for years, years and years. That's love. Yeah. And now we have a, like a second bedroom with an office. If it's like luxurious to me, I mean, it's not even the, this apartment isn't even humongous. It's 800 square feet. Like it's not a monstrously huge place and we both work from home in here a lot of days but it's like compared to that first place where i was like i had a roommate 
and was like confined to my bedroom if I wanted to draw. There was nowhere to put my desk in the our living room that was just big enough for a couch. Like there was, yeah. What was worth being in New York for at that time? Like you're commuting back to Connecticut. Mm. What what was giving you something in New York? So, I mean, I, I love it here. It's my favorite city in America. I've always, my cat just opened the door with her face. Hi, Ophelia. Sorry. No, uh, she can you're, stay. I mean, if, if you want to get the real verisimilitude of being in my studio, <laughs> it is getting annoyed by this cat 45 times a day who loves to jump on my desk and like knock the pen out of my hand with her face. Um, Harassment. Yeah. Hey, Ophelia. How do you feel about your parents being talented? Thank you. Hi, baby. <laughs> yeah, I grew up, I said the middle of nowhere before. It was like far enough out, like past the suburbs that it was like some farmland and stuff. But uh, my dad always worked in the city. My parents are both from the Bronx. All my grandparents lived in the city when I was a kid. I spent a ton of time here. As a teenager, it was always like my favorite place. Um, so it was just, I wanted to live here. My job in Connecticut, I didn't like the town it was in. It wasn't like exciting to me. It was like you'd go to a bar or a restaurant. It was like the same 10 guys in like check shirts drinking the same beer and like eating wings and stuff. And I was just kind of like, this isn't interesting. I want to be near like culture. And I like Queens specifically because it's such a it's such a diverse place with people from all over the world in it. And it's just I always feel really at home here. I've been in this neighborhood for like a decade now. Um, it was always going to be New York for me. There wasn't really like another place I wanted to go move to that. If it was, I would probably, it would be somewhere outside of America, probably. So what marked the transition from working the job in Connecticut to becoming effectively a full-time cartoonist? It was a long road. So I was, I was working the job in Connecticut. I finally eventually got a job here in Queens doing not engineering work, but kind of engineering work, uh, which was great for me because it cut an hour and a half of commuting each way out of my schedule. So I had more time to do comics, which is good for my career and my development as a, an artist. After about a year and a half, I got laid off from that job because we lost all of our funding. And then I took another engineering job sort of in a panic because I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do in my life. Uh, and it's really easy to get an engineering job in New York if you did what I did, which was working in construction, um, which I hated. <laughs> so like the first engineering job I had, it was working in museum construction, which is okay. And the second one I got, it was working for like retail, which was a nightmare. And I felt like morally compromised doing it. So I wasn't there for long and then I quit um, and I went to go work for a glass blower as his assistant thinking that it would be like, oh, I can get like some creative energy out, you know, and it was just a nightmare. It was just really exhausting. I was on my feet all day. I didn't have time to like think like the engineering job. I could like take 10 minutes and write at work and no one would notice or oh, on my long commute. I could sit there and read comics or just think about what I wanted to do or write or draw my notebook, whatever. But that that job, it was just like nonstop on my feet, hard work. What does being a glassblower's assistant entail? Also, that definitely sounds like the name of a book, The Glassblower's glass assistant. assistant. Yeah. Also, The Glassblower's Wife, obviously. Obviously. Uh, I mean, so it entailed like, have, have you watched? There's a Netflix show called, uh, God, it's got a funny name. It's like a glassblowing reality yeah. competition. Yeah, it's called Blowing It or something. <laughs> Don't blow. It's got blow in the title because they got to do it. On that show, you can see there's all they have all these assistants that are like glassblowing students at a nearby university, and they're just getting screamed at by the glassblowers. But that's what it's like. 
Like that, I tried to watch that show and it was like very enjoyable because I know a lot about glass blowing. And do you have the name? Blown Away. Blown Away. Thank you. I knew knew it was something more positive than don't blow it. (laughs) Don't blow it. (laughs) Well, because, hey, do blow it. But it was giving me like panic attacks to watch this show and look. Because it was like, it would entail, so like four days a week I'd go to a studio in Chelsea where you had like a building and I'd work in like a second sub-basement brushing metal to make like lamp hardware and like doing wiring testing and like building these lamps and doing like cold working. And then once a week I'd have to go to the glassblowing studio in Newark, New Jersey, and I'd have to get there an hour before he did so I can like set up all of his tools. Uh, and like, there's a lot of like wet newspaper you need for glassblowing because oh. like there's a lot of like the shaping you do. You make like a mitt out of wet newspaper and like roll it around. So I was like wetting his newspaper every morning and like preparing and like cleaning and preparing his tools. And while he was like doing the blowing, I was maybe sometimes helping him do that. And then also like the cold working in the studio, which was like, again, all the tools had to be like wet. So the glass doesn't crack. So it was just like being like pelted with cold water all day. And like in the winter it was like awful. Miraculously during that time of that job, I guess I was just maybe less like horribly depressed about what I was doing. Cause it was at least I was making lamps and not like helping gentrify New York, which was what that other job felt like. So during that time, I, my career actually was doing okay. And I started getting where I got my first work for the nib one of his very, very early stages of it, like a comic I did. Matt Boris, the editor, got a hold of, and he liked it, so he did a reprint, and then I started doing original work for them. And then there's this thing coming up where I was going to apply for an editorial assistant job there that they needed to fill, and at the same time was negotiating a, a book deal with my partner, Jaya, to do this thing called Dad Magazine, which was like a running series on the toast that we did together that a publisher wanted to do a real version of in print. And I was like, oh, I'm going to work part-time and then do this nib stuff and do the book. And it's going to be like, I'm like on my way. And then I got fired. <laughs> I didn't get, It was the only time I've ever been fired in my life. Me and the boss didn't get along. Uh, he thought my attitude was not good, which is in hindsight probably true. Because when I want to do something, I'm really bad at it. It just didn't work out. It's fine. Because the day I was going to approach him about going part-time was the day I had the interview with the nib. was the day I got fired. <laughs> and then I got the job. And I was like, well, this worked out. It's insanely lucky. To this day, I'm still kind of shocked and shocked about it. It's almost six years ago now. But then I basically ever since then, I was, and then I was freelancing and then doing work for the Nib full time uh, basically since then. It sounds as though you need a very particular kind of perseverance and foolhardiness to continue to do your craft in the lead up to potentially one day getting full time work. Did you have a lot of patience for that period of time? I think. In retrospect, I feel like I was, I must have had patience, right? Because I kept doing it. I think at the time I felt really impatient. I was pretty unhappy about the whole thing. And I, what, I, what I used to get really upset about was that since I had to go to work every day and had these, this horrible commute for, for four or five years, that I wasn't getting good enough fast enough. I wasn't getting like the hours in. You know, like the, was it the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours in? Like that's horse shit. And yeah. that guy is a, he, he's sort of like a, he's doing like free jazz a lot of the time with just like little factoids that he free picks up. Free jazz. You know, like he's just sort of like, I found this cool thing. found this cool thing. I'm just going to grab them, like stick them together. Isn't that real interesting? Can I have a million dollars, please? And people say yes. People say, yeah, please. <laughs> please give me that. Give me that. Give me that free jazz, Malcolm. But anyways, uh, but like <laughs> he's not, the 10,000 hours thing is actually pretty apt for cartooning or maybe not the, giving it the numbers still, I think, horseshit, but for cartooning comics really you just got to put in the hours you got to do it over and over and over and over and over and over until you've ironed out all the kinks and found your style and your approach find what works for you 
get okay at drafting. Like you have to just really go take a lot of time to do it. So I wasn't, I was upset for a long time that I wasn't getting the, the time that I thought that I needed to get better because I could recognize that I wasn't where I wanted to be, but I knew that I could get there if I could just, you know, and I still don't think I'm like good. And I'm still like, I still think of what I'm doing all the time as like practicing, you know, um, I'm always getting better. I'm always thinking about how to change what I'm doing. Um, but yeah, I don't think I was very patient at the time. But I, I mean, I must have been right. Patient in practice. Patient, yeah. I guess. I mean, I was patient that I wouldn't. I didn't stop doing it because I felt. I guess I felt more driven than patient. Eventually, you did edit for the nib, and I still do. Yeah. Still do yeah. edit for the nib. Have you found that editing comics has mm-hmm. become part of the practice of understanding how to improve your own structure, tone, etc.? Yeah, for I mean, definitely for sure. Because I I think a lot of a lot of cartoonists don't get edited. And a lot of the time when they're working with us, it's their first time being edited, which sometimes is a little bumpy, but it's, I think it's okay. I think it's worth it. And most people come out of the process happy about it. I definitely was like that when I started because I'd been doing comics for a long, long time with nobody editing it until it was out there in the world. And that was the, only, the first time another person saw it a lot of the time, period, which is not how most art functions generally. You know, cartooning specifically where you're the writer and the author, it's very autorish in practice and you're sitting alone in a room a lot um so having someone every step of the way sort of like peeking in and telling you what to do better it can be very frustrating at first but i've definitely found because all most of the editing work that i do is for like the shorter form stuff satire comedy some of the short nonfiction. but it's always like i don't want to just take my approach and tell them what to do and sort of like getting in the mind space of what they're trying to do and trying to find where they want to go with it and uh try to help them get there the best I can. It's been really helpful for me to step back and like edit my own work. And the other thing is, I mean, for years now, me and Matt Boris, who's the editor, who's been a syndicated political cartoonist since I was in college, me and him now every week, we kind of write our comics together at this point and we edit each other's work. And it's been really great for me to be edited all the time. And it sort of definitely also has me change my approach because I can understand that like the first draft doesn't have to be perfect to get the idea down and I can talk it out with a person. It's like it's totally changed my approach to how I do the comics. And I think it's made me a better cartoonist for sure. What do you think makes a satirical or comedic cartoon work when you have particularly this combination of language and image? So, I mean, there's a couple of things when I'm when I'm writing that I think when I try to think about what's successful about it and it's. The first question I always like to ask is, why is this a cartoon? Why is this a comic and not just an essay or a sentence I say to somebody? So I try to think about, does it have a visual component to it? Is like part of what you're trying to say represented visually or at least is the visual adding something that you couldn't just do with words? Which is, of course, you know, the magic and the je ne sais quoi of cartoons. Or it's like the, the thing that makes them so accessible and great. The second thing is, like, does it have, I think for a lot of the satire we look at, my number one note for people when they send in work to us to look at is, like, what's new about this? Like, what are you saying that hasn't been said a thousand times? It's just the same old crap. Is it Trump and Putin kissing? Like, you know, like, so I you find... get a lot of that? Oh, yeah, so we do get a lot of those. It's it's actually kind of dried up the last year or so. We ran a comic by, by one of our contributors uh, called Damien Alexander called, like, basically why your Trump and Putin jokes aren't funny. Uh, you know, he's a queer man and, like... After we got that, we got a lot less of them. But it's sort of like that sort of level of scare quotes, uh, political commentary that's just sort of like very basic. You don't have anything to say. This Anyone could do this. You know, I try not to do that kind of, you know, and, you know, there's probably weeks that I fail and I do something that's been said or whatever. But, you know, the, the, the idea is to always be pushing for that. And the other thing is point of view. Like, 
why is it you saying this? Like, are you coming from a place where like, this is like from a consistent political standpoint that makes sense is a thing that I always try to keep in mind. Your trajectory as both a comic maker and editor also intersects with your own becoming in a sense, from what I understand, wherein you originally creating this work were not out Mm. as genderqueer. And then over the course of being an editor came out and you actually wrote a really funny and simple cartoon on the feminine adornment of lipstick for the cut, which was fantastic. Thank you. Did you notice anything about the kind of pieces that you were able to write about queer experience and catering to popular audiences as you began to represent or want to represent aspects of your queerness in your work? I think before I was out, before I had sort of like started to reckon with this thing about myself, I definitely did the odd comic about queer issues. Just in my facility as a political cartoonist, it's kind of hard not to. (laughs) And, you know... I look back at that work and I'm not ashamed of it or anything. It was definitely on the right side of things, but it was sort of like, you know, speaking to it from just sort of like, oh, this is like a morally righteous stance and less like a personal experience stance. Um, And I think as I went on and it was something that I could speak to out of personal experience and, you know, stuff that had happened to me in the world or stuff that I had personally gone through or reckoned with or thought about. It's certainly, you know, it's that thing where I can speak to it with more of an authority than I could previously. And it's definitely influenced in terms of like, oh, I want to represent that more as time goes on, I find. I want to do more comics about that stuff because I want to talk about it more because I feel more and more comfortable sort of representing myself in that way. It's it's always, you know, it's like every queer person I've ever talked to ever has the same problem, right? It's like you come out and you spend the first while sort of like tiptoeing around, like, do I deserve to be here or whatever, where every other person is like, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. But like to sort of understand or to sort of accept that about yourself, that it is fine to represent your experience and it's yours. And it's, you know, there's something universal and everybody, you know, it's been like, I think, uh, two and a half, maybe a little more since I sort of like came out to like my partner and like that stuff. And then I think it's like two years next week since I came out publicly. I've definitely found myself doing more and more work that is specifically about queer issues in that time. Yeah. And I feel like I, I can speak to it now with an authority that like, I could always speak to about like Jewish shit, you know, to sort of like get to that same level of comfort. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I, I've changed sort of like art the way I've been accepting, like taking more comics in or it's more in the back of my mind when we're doing something like putting together uh, one of our magazines or one of the print volumes that we want to do. Like I'm thinking more about having that representation there, but I was already. It's just more sort of like prevalent in my brain because now it's. I feel like it was a fight that I felt solidarity with, but now it's definitely like more, you know, my fight. If anything, it's, it's changed in terms of like I feel more comfortable editing other queer artists and having a discussion about what they're saying because like it was always you don't want to tell somebody what their experience is. And that's still true. Like if I'm talking to like a binary trans woman about something in a comic. I don't want to tell her what her experience was. I don't like still, you know, you want to be careful when you're talking to people about editing them, but I feel more like there's a more baseline understanding. It's easier to communicate and sort of, it's been helpful for that for sure. Hey, Rosie here. Guess what? It's time for The Dose, a segment where a comedy writer recommends things they're enjoying at the moment to thrive at this time in history. 
This episode's guest is Jana Schmeeding. Jana is a Menakonju and Shishongu Lakota Sioux comedy writer, performer, activist, and former educator who is currently working and living in Los Angeles. She is a writer and actor on Peacock's Rutherford Falls at the moment, and she also hosts a podcast called Women of Size, where brilliant people discuss their experiences with body-based discrimination. Drawing from her experiences as an Indigenous feminist, Jana uses her creative work and advocacy to move the needle on native representation in media and entertainment. And you can read Jana's writing in The Independent, Huffington Post, Hello Giggles, Salty, Bus.com and Reductress. Jana and I logged on to the same Zoom and here are her really great four recommendations. All of these recommendations are highbrow in my humble opinion, but (laughs) I don't think that everyone will agree. Go to town. What are your highbrow recommendations? Okay, my first highbrow recommendation is (laughs) X-Files. It's a stellar hit and it withstands the test of time. Also, I think that Gillian Anderson is amazing and a babe and uh, always has been and... I have a crush on her, so maybe that's why I'm recommending it. Julian Anderson is a massive babe, and I also have a huge crush on her, so best recommendation yeah. ever. Did you know that she's playing Margaret Thatcher in the new uh, oh, season cool of The Crown? She is. Oh, Jesus. oh, my God. She's not just a babe. She's also, like, an acting icon. She's so good. Yeah. My other recommendation is Indian food. <laughs> so good. These are such great. You can have all these together at the same time as well. Yes, I think I am having them all together and that's why I'm recommending them together. I get Indian food at least once every two weeks. More than that, I feel like my personal digestion would suffer, but every two weeks on a Friday, I try to support a local Indian food restaurant. I try to order one vegetable dish, one chicken dish, one lamb dish, and I go to town on the garlic naan. I highly recommend, I don't know if this will be a, this will be a rare find for probably most listeners, but something that I find to be like visual ASMR is sped up videos of people beading. So beadwork is like specifically an indigenous art and I do it. I practice it pretty daily and some bead workers have on their Instagrams themselves beading and then it's sped up. You know, you use like the time-lapse function on their phone. I have some on my own Instagram and people love them, but I like watching them. I love watching people bead in regular time too. It's just very, um, it's almost like watching a puzzle come into place, but there's something nice about the fast version. I noticed that you have an Etsy account where you sell some of your beadwork, but it looks like- there's nothing on there at the moment and no because i am currently i have a job right now damn i'm, I'm starring <laughs> I'm so in a television sorry. show <laughs> <laughs> um so i just don't have you know beating is takes a long time and it's like the world of like um online beadwork sales is quite competitive I feel like I need to write a TV show that is like the Queen's Gambit except for um, online beadwork selling because people post that shit 
and it goes so fast. You got to like put an alarm. I have like three different alarms in my phone right now for different bead workers who are dropping new lines coming up this month. And it's, yeah. So like my Etsy store is closed right now because I just can't kick out the amount of pieces that I would like to. But you know what? In the new year, I will be on a hiatus. I will be doing nothing. So fingers crossed this winter, I can like stock up my Etsy store and it'll be back online. I used to also take commissions um, just like through my Instagram and I can't even do those anymore. So I've kind of like shut down my um, my beadwork sales, but that doesn't mean that'll be forever. They'll come back. I think beadwork has filled a a spot in my life that both keeps me busy and keeps my mind um, like thinking. It's like a, a creative practice that allows me artistic, creative, and critical thought all at once. But it's also just something where it's like so fulfilling to finish a piece. I'm working right now on a pair of Converse high tops for a friend for her birthday. So it's really fun. And then my last recommendation is also food based. <laughs> oh no, are all of mine food based? No, beading isn't food. Yeah, Nick Files isn't food. Julian Anderson is food, but that's yeah, allowed. Yeah, she's a rich, rich white chocolate. She's like a lint <laughs> truffle. <laughs> I got at the beginning of the pandemic. I got myself a uh, soda stream because I was going through cans of LaCroix and all kinds of fancy sodas. And I started feeling really bad about the amount of tin that I was producing. And I am a lazy person. I'm quite lazy. However, the soda stream only requires you just fill up the bottle and you put in the flavor and you do a quick little turn and a press of a button. It's so quick and so easy. And you can buy flavors that you like. I mean, I've been getting into weird drinks like Italian sodas. Have you ever had one of those? Tell me more. Italian sodas are a thing that like I used to get when I was a kid before I drank espresso, like before I was going to a coffee bar to get coffee. There's like two things that you can get as a kid if you go to like Starbucks or like, I don't even know if Starbucks does this. They should. <laughs> um, <laughs> but like where I grew up, if you're a kid, you could go with your, let's say it's an aunt to get coffee and you could either get a steamer, which is steamed milk with flavor in it, or well, I guess that's three, hot chocolate. You could get a hot chocolate, steamed milk, a steamer, or you could get an Italian soda, which is a flavor syrup. It's iced, It's a, and then they put the flavor syrup. I like raspberry or cherry or like a, a berry kind, seltzer water, and a little bit of half and half. It's weird, but it's so good. And then you put whipped cream on top and you got yourself a fancy little Italian soda. <sighs> and I've been returning to those in the pandemic. They're back. You can follow Jenna on Instagram and Twitter, listen to her podcast, Women of Size, and check out beading Instagram accounts to get you hooked on speed beading via the show notes of this episode, where you will also find information about all of the guests and performers who have appeared on this episode. Now, back to Matt Lubchansky's studio in Queens, where we're talking about how to do comics good collaboratively. 
for satirical writers and cartoonists independently to work together for the nib or a publication that they might like to pitch for, yeah, what do they have to do? So every, every publication is different, I would suggest, especially for the nib, but just go look at their submission guidelines, check out what they're looking for, uh, read the actual thing that you are submitting to, make sure you're spelling everybody's name correctly when you write them an email. If you are submitting to the nib, make sure your submission does not say newyorker.jpg on the file name. Because <laughs> they're going to know. They're gonna, we're going to notice when we see the file name, which is fine that you submitted it to the New Yorker first. It's fine. They pay really well. But like, you know, it's like sending a college letter with the wrong college name at the top. And it's like, that's not great. We'll still look at it. <laughs> so like, say you have like a writer and a cartoonist working okay. together. Yeah. The distribution of labor, I'm sure, changes from person to person. But there isn't a lot of discussion about what actually working together on a project looks like. And I think it'd be really great to have some sense of what to expect from each other. I mean, I think working on comics as collaborators is a really specific sort of, I think in the, you know, for a long time, it was the only way comics worked. Mainstream American comics, it was like this assembly line process where someone would write it and then someone would pencil it and someone would ink it, someone would letter it, someone would color it. It was literally an assembly line. And that's how comics functioned for a long time. And like newspaper comic strips were still very autorish. Like Charles Schultz was just doing peanuts himself, whatever. But like Spider-Man was an assembly line for years. And that's how it worked. It was also an awful labor situation, which is another thing about comics that's great, is the awful labor situation. But now things have shifted some and people want more like an authentic vision from one or two three people and it's sort of it functions a lot differently so i think i mean it's working with a person a bunch of times is obviously the best way to sort of like get a rapport on what's expected like i know the times that i've collaborated i don't just want to be handed a script and go i want to like talk to them about what they want out of it i want like a lot of sort of collaboration but it also depends on every project there's like you could be talking to someone who's like an old hand at just like taking a script and drawing it and that's what they want to do you could be talking to someone who just wants to write a script and that's all they want to do because i think also like it's really hard to write comics if you don't draw i think there are tons and tons and tons of great comic book writers who don't draw obviously but i think it takes a while because to draw a comic is like it's like directing a movie like you have to put everyone where they have to be you got to do the lighting yourself costume design like everything's on you um so if someone's just writing it they need to have some mind for what the visuals are going to be generally like you could just give me a comic page that's just dialogue and like what happens vaguely and i'll figure it out but that's Again, a lot of work that I have to do on top of it. So like, if you want like a more even distribution of what's being done, stuff like pre-considering the layout of the page and the visuals and like how many tiers you want and stuff like that is really important. Also, if you're writing and you're not an artist, think about how many words can fit in the panel because that is a thing that every time I work with someone who hasn't drawn or doesn't, it's like maybe their first time writing a comic, they send me paragraphs of text per panel and it's like, well, you can get a sentence, maybe two in a panel and that's what you can get away with generally before it starts looking like just a wall of text another thing i try to avoid in my work if possible well it's very hard it's very hard in political comics because you want to provide a lot of context but yeah in terms of nailing down your own satirical point of view Mm -hmm. how did you practice that because cartooning is one set of skills and satirical work is a completely different set of skills that you have to intertwine with your ability to intelligently illustrate it was interesting because i think i never used to i sort of fell like ass backwards into doing political comics like capital p capital c 
it's still not the only thing I do for a couple of years now. It's been my majority income has been doing political comics, but, and I still like to think like I'm still, I'm working on some fiction right now and it's still deeply political, which is, that's just where I'm at as a person. It's hard for me to extricate those things. But I think when I first started doing work for the Nibbuk, it was like reprints of my other work for like a web comic I've been doing since 2009 or so. And I didn't think of that stuff as political work explicitly, but it kept getting reprinted in this like political comics thing. And then I was doing more explicitly political work for them, but it was still like my work is a little more abstract than that. Like I do it more often on the nib that I would elsewhere, but like I try not to use actual politicians. I try not to like portray actual things that are happening. Generally it's less interesting to me. And I try to like sort of look at a situation that I have some thoughts about. And I, I try to like untangle the specifics, the place, the time, the people, whatever. And like, what's the thing about the the power structure at play here? What's the thing about the, the bigotry we're talking about? The maybe like, you know, class issues, capitalism, whatever. And sort of like find the, the nut of the thing that it's actually about and then blow it up to some sort of absurd proportion. So I think I was always doing that. And I realized I go look at my old work that first got me noticed and like put on the name. But it was always like, yeah, it was, you know, it was pretty political, actually. It just wasn't thinking of it that way or i think it's just i'm always just been a person with pretty hard opinions <laughs> and it's kind of i can't really erase it from my work what if anything do you notice in other people's work and admire about their work that you feel still eludes you in terms of satire and humor and comic making Ooh. um so i think it's that sort of thing where there's like elements of lots of people's work that I know that I wish I could sort of like grab and just take and steal. Like in terms of like political satire and the comics that we've run, I would love to be able to steal Matt Boris's ability to like, he's very good at like getting something into like three or four words. That's sort of like the whole thing, right? The whole art of comics is to get stuff into as few lines and as few words as possible to condense your idea into something really digestible as fast as you can. And I think he's really great at that. Uh, and also he's a very good draft person in a way that like I'll never be. And he can like do different styles and stuff. It's always very interesting. I think all the time that um, one of our contributors, uh, Joey Allison Sayers, uh, does really, she does the funniest work I've seen in like short gag comics. She's so fucking funny. And it's really upsetting to me to read her work a lot of the time. Like the the way that she comes at stuff is so out of the box. She's got this great way of like, it's like non-linear joke writing in this way that's like very it's like more absurdist than my work is in a way that I wish I could really do. Uh, ben Passport is another person. I'd love to steal his talent. He's very good. His work is so righteously angry in this way. That's still, but still very funny and like playful and is uh, better with color than I'll ever manage to be in my entire life. For sure. Is there a piece of comedy or satire in any form mm. that you really admire? What is it? And why do you admire it? So when I'm working, I'll be sitting at my desk for, you know, some days. Like yesterday, I was sitting at my desk for, I was drawing for 12 hours yesterday. And I'm always like watching something, like a movie, whatever. And it's, you know, it's out of the corner of my eye. So I try to put on things that I've watched before or at least don't matter. Like I'll either be watching like a bad TV show. Like I'll watch all of House or some shit just because it's like, oh, here's probably close to thousands of hours of television. I'm just like, I don't have to think about what's put on next. It just goes and goes. Every episode's the same, but it's like noise. Like the other day, I rewatched all of uh, I Think You Should Leave with Tim Robinson on Netflix. Uh, have you seen it? You have no idea the number of times that God. show has been mentioned on this podcast so far. 
It's so good. It's, it's like, very like madcap, it seems. It's insane. Yeah. But it's got this it's got this energy that is just so it's got this like completely crazy thing bottled up that you can't really put a name to. And it's just like cause I still every week do like this gag strip on my own, like on my Patreon that I've been doing for ten years now. That again is like still political a lot of the time, but I try to get really I try to get as absurd with it as I can because it's sort of like or I can do that still. And watching that show, it just makes me want to write better com. It makes me want to write like the 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 setups for the the stuff on that show is they're just so original. They're so interesting, but at the same time, aren't like like you know it's not like supernatural crap happening. It's all just like really, 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 really specific strange things. Uh, and it's uh, it's really, really admirable. And I'll think about like weird shit, like the way people deliver a single line on that show for weeks. It'll like send me laughing forever just to think about the way that um, there's like this one sketch that's like not even my favorite favorite sketch, but there's this uh, Patty Harris. You know who she is? She's in it. Yeah. yeah, and she says the word early really weirdly a bunch of times, and it's just I don't know. It makes me fucking die, and I think about it all the time, and I'll just say it out loud to myself and like cackle like a maniac. I don't know. Isn't there a bit on the cut where you can write about something that? Oh, the, I think about this all the time. Yeah, yeah. You should do yeah, it. Sometime. Yeah, well. you've got it already in the back. <laughs> I got, yeah, I mean, everything is the thing I think about all the time is my main problem. <laughs> <laughs> the incredible thing about it is all the sketches have almost the same exact rhythm to them. Like the, every every sketch, not necessarily, but you could describe every sketch as having the same plot, you know, but there's 30 of them <laughs> and they're all funny. It's great. Like every sketch is like, look at this asshole. Like that's the that's the plot of every sketch. <laughs> it's like, look at this crazy asshole. Like, it, I mean, that's why it's called what it's called. I think, but like, there's a couple of them that are that stray from that formula. There's one that's like, if you watch it, there's one that's I actually find very heartwarming about motorcycles. <laughs> uh, Spoil it for us. Okay, it's at the cold open to one of the episodes, and the whole sketch is like this guy walking around, like he's like a motorcycle guy. He's got like a bandana and like long hair and leather jacket. He's walking around. He sees a motorcycle. He's like, cool motorcycle. And then he sees like he sees a car, and he's like two motorcycles with a little house in it. Okay, and then he's like walking <laughs> around. And he sees like he sees like a baby in a stroller. He's like great motorcycle, and then he sees a bus, and he just falls to his knees like losing his mind in ecstasy, and then he is beamed to space, <laughs> and it cuts to space, and there's like a giant motorcycle ship orbiting Earth, and it's full of motorcycle people, and he beams aboard, and. And the guy, like the commander of the ship just goes, so? And the motorcycle guy goes, oh, there's motorcycles. <laughs> and then they all go back to Earth just looking at all the stuff that he saw and like happily clapping each other on the shoulder and like w- they walk off into the sunset. <laughs> That's the sketch. <laughs> and it's like, a thing that drives me nuts is someone's like, I don't know why I'm laughing at this. But like, I don't know why That's so, it's, I, I know why it's funny. I don't know why it's so heartwarming to me. I guess like they found it's just nice. I don't know, but it's it's deeply hilarious. And also like still somehow making fun of like the idea of someone that like sees a car and is like, oh yeah, nice car. <laughs> still, And still every time a motorcycle goes flying, I'm actually shocked that a, a very loud motorcycle that someone who lives like two blocks away has a very loud motorcycle and likes to just go up and down the street all the time making noise. But anyways, if I see him in the street, I always <laughs> I give him a thumbs up and I yell cool motorcycle at him now. <laughs> Because he needs to know. He's going to think that you are the real life version 
of that opening alien? bit. And yeah. he probably doesn't even know about it, that opening bit. So you're just a straight up motorcycle alien. Yeah, him. that's me now. That's beautiful. It's really, it's really beautiful. Like that, and that's like one of the very few sketches that stray from the, 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 the formula of check out this dick. But it is, it is one of my favorites. You talked a little bit there about the fact that when you watched the show, mm-hmm. it inspired you to push yourself harder in your work. Yeah. What is the greatest risk that you can remember having taken with a cartoon? And was there a payoff or did it fail? Hmm. Uh, so I think it's kind of hard to quantify because most of my work is so short. Like it's all like four to eight panels. I would say, I mean, the, the biggest risks are probably like when I when I get personal because that's always the, the scariest thing to me is that because at this point uh, I do have like a moderate following on social media, I'm always not scared, but like pre-annoyed <laughs> that I'm going to get bothered by people all day. They yell at me like I'll do a comic about something and like, you know, some old Gamergate chud will get mad at me and, like, send his followers after me and I gotta, like, lock for a couple hours just so I stop getting screamed at by dipshits. And it's, like, it's fine. Like, I know what to deal with. I'm, like, I'm not super cut out to, like, sit around arguing online all day. For someone who loves to argue, I'm very bad at dealing with, like, every time I start an argument, I'm always like, I don't want to be here anymore. <laughs> uh, which is bad, so I try not to argue online anymore. <laughs> so, like, I know when I'm right and someone is yelling at me online, and I know they're wrong, which is often because I'm never wrong, which is a nice <laughs> thing about being me. I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've never been wrong. So like, I'm okay with that. What I am scared of is like when I get personal in my work, that someone's going to use that against me. For a long time, I didn't even have my real photo as like avatars for stuff because I just didn't want to get involved in that shit. So like, yeah, like the comic I did for the cut that you mentioned or another comic I did for the nib when I first came out that was like in one of our, uh, we have a feature called The Response where we ask a bunch of cartoonists a single question, everybody answers it in like a four panel short. We did one about someone who had undergone any sort of gender transition in the last year. It had been like nine or 10 months into it for me. So I did one for that. And that was horrifying to me because that was also, again, I mean, the other thing is like people from my hometown, extended family members, stuff like that. They'll randomly come across that stuff. And like, maybe I hadn't come out to them. Maybe they hadn't seen it. And it's sort of like to be that honest about Myself is scary and almost always those have paid off because it's always been like I've uh, fingers crossed yet to face like a negative repercussion in my life in terms of like a relationship with somebody. I've been very lucky on that front. I mean, I think it's also like just coming out this late in my life was sort of like, well, the people that are shitty have already been expunged in my 20s. So it's kind of like, well, no one's going to I'm not I haven't lost any people really. And there's been like, you know, bumpier relationships than others. But most of it at this point has been smoothed out just fine. I haven't had to like estrange myself from anybody in my life, which I'm very, very, very lucky. And I know most, pe- a lot of people are not. Uh, so like that, the risk has paid off for me in that I get messages all the time now for people like asking advice or they don't know how to come out to their friend and they ask me. And it's just kind of like, or people just, you know, I'm not trying to toot my own horn or whatever, but like very occasionally I'll get someone like just thanking me for being a visible person. Cause it's like, it enabled them to see something about themselves and they came out or whatever. And like, I know that's for me, it was non-binary people I knew that sort of like made something click in my brain that it was a word that I've been searching for since forever, that it was there. And so I think I like to think of it as like just trying to pay it forward as much as I can. So it, that's been very good. Yeah. And then like the other risk is occasionally I'll go after somebody that'll get really, 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 really mad at me. And it's like, that one's fine. That pays off, I guess, because I get to argue with someone. <laughs> I and think run that away. I apparently love. Yeah. <laughs> Final question for you, yeah. Matt Lubchansky. Mm-hmm. 
what do you have coming up next and or what are you excited about in your future and what do you need to get that done? Ooh. Um, so I just spent the last month, I don't know if it's good or not to put this out there, but I just spent the last like month or so putting together like a book pitch that I'm trying to sell. I would like to do more fiction work in my future. I have like lots of ideas and for years has been something that I wanted to do with sort of like the nibs, like recent sort of restructuring that I don't have like a full-time salary job anymore because we lost our corporate funding, but we are still publishing and stuff. But like, I have less of a full-time job there. I've been sort of like, Oh, this is an opportunity for me to do stuff that I've always wanted to do, which is make more stuff that is explicitly just like a fiction story, but it's still political in a way. So it's like sort of like, that's what I'm doing. And I guess I need some luck for that to happen, or at least someone at a large publishing house needs to find that marketable as I hope they do. If you're listening, book publishers, talk to me. Matt Lipchansky, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, it's been a year since I spoke to Matt, so we dropped into a Zoom to catch up. Matt's working situation in Queens has remained somewhat unchanged over the pandemic, but how Matt spends their time and the type of feline harassment experienced in the home has altered significantly. Matt, hi. Yes, Rosie, what's up? How are you? I am okay, all things considered, which is the only <laughs> way people can answer that question now. I'm materially have... fine. Okay. You have a great panel on your Instagram uh, feed that is you in some kind of horrible gladiator monster fighting situation over like water as a resource. And you're mm. there's this shot in the story where you're in a prison cell and you ask somebody to pass on this message to your loved ones. And then the piece of paper is revealed and it says, just like wondering how all of this is going for everyone. And I really love the heightening and the use of this completely played down and vague phrase that we're all using in this particular panel. I feel like it reflects the times very well. Oh, thank you. Yeah, there's a lot of people just like saying the words like gesturing to everything. And I'm like, what does that mean? There's like a lot of things are just very bad. It's just like a weird thing that I, it like stuck in my brain that people keep using this thing. That was one of my more deranged comics where I was just, I don't know what the point was. I was just having a fun time with a dumb thing. When I was in your apartment a year ago, Ophelia came in and uh, and you explained that she's a serial harasser. Mm. Now we're in lockdown or have been in lockdown. How was working with Ophelia? She is, I think, becoming tired of me at this point. I think the tables have truly turned. Like we're, you know, I, I've always worked, for, I've always worked from home basically most of her life, but um, I really now because I'm not going outside so much. Um, there's a lot more of me singing with the cat, wondering where the cat is, picking up the cat, making my partner look at the cat. You know, there's a lot of like, uh, you see what she's doing and it's always the same thing. She's just asleep, but like in the same position she's always in. And there's, I think she's becoming sort of uh, less enamored with me as time goes on, as I continue to bother her all the time. Lipchansky, I do the same thing with my cat uh-huh. and my partner yeah. is so jack of it. <laughs> the good news is like, I think my partner is like on the same page as me in terms of like, look at the cat, but sometimes she is busy and I am trying to show her the cat and I'm like bringing the cat over to her and she's like, I don't. And I'm like, well, look at her little head. It's very small. And Jai will be like, yeah, I see, I see her. I'm like, no, but look, are you looking at? 
I mean, she still bothers the hell out of me all the time. Like if I leave the house for a couple hours, you know, at the most you're going to get out of me at this point, she does go in, like fully insane now and is like waiting at the door. Like, where were you? I thought you never left like me. I thought you were like me and could never leave now. <laughs> Trapped in the home. Especially when you've got an indoor cat, like the domestication of the animal. You're like, wow, are you actually a prisoner? Like now I think yeah. about it. Like once or twice I've opened the door for a delivery person and she's just gotten in the elevator. <laughs> and you know i i go get her because like, i gotta want her to leave but like at some point like mm, she if she if she truly wanted to leave she's free to go at any time <laughs> no, I well i mean i guess at the moment none of us have been free to leave uh but i'm wondering in this time where you've kind of had a more restricted life uh, whether you think you've picked up any kind of new skills or ways of thinking to make your comics over the last 12 months. I mean, I think if anything, it's been sort of like an interesting exercise in, you know, there's that uh, capitalism tells you that like productivity is your human worth. And I think at the beginning of all this, of all this, uh, you know, at the beginning of it, like, <laughs> of everything, of, of, you know, all this stuff happening right now, you know, at the, at the, be- at the beginning, there was a lot of, um, talk I think a lot from like other creative people that I know creative workers artists writers whatever musicians that like oh we're all gonna be stuck inside but like it's gonna be great for my creative practice whatever it is but I know that really hasn't been the case for most people you know it's not like I feel great all the time like so much of my process was going outside and taking a walk or going and like living my life and observing what's going on in the world or like you know I realized I got most of my best ideas when I was like on the subway or something Um, or talking to another person, like a human being that I would meet at a party or something. Like that was so much of my ideation. So it's actually been kind of an interesting premise and like a couple of things, which is like decoupling my worth from how much I'm getting done, which like we're all getting less done, I think, as a society. Uh, And also like sort of being able to grind it out when I don't have the, there's like a, (laughs) this is meant to say, but it sounds weird and gross, but just sort of like, you know, some, some days you got the juice and some days you don't. And I think during uh, the lockdown and the pandemic and election season and the uprisings and the protests and stuff, like, I think there's just been a lot more, like, less days where I've got the juice and I've just got to kind of work through it. So I guess that's really, like, the biggest change in my approach. I would say it's just sort of, it's it's become more of a grind in a lot of respects. Have you found yourself either managing the feel of the grind, you know, allowing yourself to take breaks, or as you said, like, not have the juice? Oh yeah, um, I'm taking I'm taking a lot of breaks these days. A lot of breaks, a lot of breaks. It's like a lot of like, oh, it's time to play a video game or like uh, take a walk or watch a movie or like a good thing for this has been since about June or July, I've been doing a lot of uh, mutual aid work with a couple of groups here in my neighborhood, like delivering food to my neighbors, like doing like some free book fairs and running like a free store and also like going to protests and handing out food and stuff. And then also going to a lot of protests and things. That's become something that's been more important to me in the last six, seven years anyways. But now it's really sort of like, you know, like everything's been so laid bare that it's not like, it's not helpful for my process. Like it's sort of like a byproduct, but it's sort of, it is nice to like, oh, that's a way that I've gotten interaction with other people and ways to go outside and do something else. But that's just sort of like a happy a, a byproduct of this thing that I think is that's becoming more important to me as stuff drags on and more problems are laid bare and people are not helped. Like today, the Senate adjourned until November um, without any COVID relief again. 
So like people are just going to keep starving and losing work and places are going to keep closing. And all we have is each other right now. And I'm just trying to like, that's been like, the I guess the biggest change of the last year how I work is I'm just working less and doing more of that, I suppose. Is that something that, I mean, obviously without the kind of imminent poverty posed by governmental control, these general kind of changes in terms of how you are living your life, how you're thinking about your work, how you're giving yourself time off, what you're dedicating your time to, are they permanent changes for you, do you think? I hope so. Like, if anything, these are things that are just going to become more important. Like, I don't think the fundamental problems here are not going to change at all. Like, I can't, I don't see, I don't see a future in which this is any of the major problems in, in America are solved in my lifetime at all. So all, all we can do is like work towards imagining a better future and like building power and solidarity and like materially helping the people around us while we can. And it's sort of like, I don't, I hope I don't lose these things, these changes that I've made to how I live my life. Like if I, if I'm listening to this a year from now, I really hope that I haven't, like if I've forgotten that, I'm going to be very mad at myself because it's sort of stuff that's always been important to me, but I've definitely reoriented how I live my day-to-day life around a lot of this stuff. And I, I think a lot of people have, and I really hope that it doesn't change. And I know that I'm doing my part to not uh, let that slip away. Well, I think that part of making sure that something stays, even though whatever stays will change, is having these conversations, like yeah. right? Like actually talking about what is working and what you want to keep because once you're starting to talk about it like you know I can say I really relate to that I've really found that the thing that's been incredibly challenging for me is as particular social events have occurred particularly Black Lives Matter in Australia as like a Mm -hmm. resurging movement um, I've, I've wanted to give a lot more than I have and I haven't had a model that has shown me or taught me that these changes are incremental. And that's because within my whiteness, I've obviously never encountered a movement. And I think actually learning and practicing that longevity by having conversations about longevity has been a really heartening thing. So thank you so much for sharing that, Matt. Oh, yeah, no problem. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like, I think it's also just continuing to surround myself with people that, you know, want to have these conversations is really important. Like, I don't want to be, yeah, like, I don't want to go back. It doesn't seem it seems like a real, you know, like the last 15 years of my life has just been like a sort of like every couple of, of weeks, like something is like ripped away. And I see like, oh, that's the, pro-. like, it just feels like getting the day live glasses over and over and over and over and over. You know, there's a, there's like an old canard about like getting more conservative as you get older. And I was so much more conservative as a teenager than I am now. Back then I was like, I don't believe in like, I'm like, I'm a centrist or whatever. Like, it's crazy. Like, <laughs> or, I, you know, or like, I was just like such like a soft liberal as a teenager that now I'm just like, I would not recognize the person, you know, and, and, that was, and that had a lot to do with like, I didn't have any problems and I didn't know what was going on in the world. So I had no chance to like, I still don't have any problems. I'm like, I just live in this room and I drop all day. But like, you know, <laughs> if anything a year from now, I'll think that I'm like a soft liberal right now is my hope. That was an interview with associate editor for The Nib, cartoonist and illustrator Matt Lipchansky. And here's this episode's reading of a comedy piece featured on the Belladonna website. How dare you submit to our literary journal. Written by Harmony Cox. Read by Mara Jai. Thank you for your interest in submitting your work to Polydactyl Typewriter. This isn't your grandfather's literary journal. This is a journal for people who live their art out loud. 
and draw great big dicks on bathroom walls and are no longer welcome in the Palisades Park Mall. Can you handle it, old man? So, like, these are our submission guidelines? Frankly, the fact you're even looking for submission guidelines probably means you aren't cut out to roll with our kick-ass crew of literary bad boys. But it's your funeral. Polydactyl Typewriter publishes two print issues a year, three digital issues, and one experimental issue that consists of our editor shouting key phrases from your work directly into a shallow grave. Here's what you should know before you submit. Polydactyl Typewriter wants work that will set the world on fire. We want work that devours the bloody afterbirth of the beat generation, then vomits it up on the tedium of modern literary fiction. We want to read your work and be driven to madness, clawing our shirts and crawling on our hands and knees into the sewers where we weep and reflect on your genius until we are killed by the filth that surrounds us. As long as it's less than 500 words. We want emerging voices. And by emerging, we mean not currently represented by an agent, but still has a well-established following that we can leverage into sales of our journal. We define emerging voices as writers that have bylines at three major online publications, 10,000 followers on Instagram, and at least one significant Twitter beef with Joyce Carol Oates. But if you don't meet those criteria, you're still welcome to submit. I mean, you can do whatever you want. It's a free country. We aren't going to publish you, but hey, knock yourself out. Polydactyl Typewriter has a commitment to amplifying diverse voices in literature. By this, we mean we have retweeted Hanif Abdukarib three times and plan to do so again when his next poetry collection comes out. You should absolutely trust our cabal of privileged, lily-white MFA students to evaluate your work free of any unconscious or overt bias against your marginalised identity. We do it for the culture. As of May 2019, we have switched to a monetized submission model. For only $75, your work can get bumped to the front of our submission line, where it will be rejected as quickly and efficiently as possible. Your money will go toward our research on why we can shamelessly extort money from writers we have no intention of publishing, while still refusing to pay our contributors. We wish we could answer that now, but the science just isn't there yet. (laughs) You can be part of the solution. If you cannot afford a submission fee, we will still accept non-monetized submissions. Non-monetized submissions are accepted on February 29th between 3am and 4am. Our average response time is between 3 hours and 3,000 years. Simultaneous submissions are not accepted because, as far as we're aware, Polydactyl Typewriter is the only literary journal on Earth, and despite our 0.0003% work acceptance rate, we expect to be your sole priority. Did we mention you could skip the line for $75? (laughs) That sounds pretty good right now, huh? To submit, please use our submittable page, which is, for some reason, not linked here. Submissions should be formatted according to arcane guidelines that only exist in our editor's head, 
Because we aren't lame and old-fashioned enough to limit your creativity by providing clear and helpful directions, please rest assured that if you do not psychically intuit these guidelines well enough to format your document to our editor's whims, your work will be rejected immediately, and our editor will also subtweet you in a way where nobody else will make the connection, but you'll still be filled with shame. Thank you for allowing Polydactyl Typewriter to continue to erode your sense of self and confidence in your work with our impersonal, expensive and frustrating submission process. We are proud to be a part of the machine that reminds you that no matter how hard you work, money and connections will get you farther in a literary world than talent ever could. We hope to hear from you soon. Mara Joy is a queer trans improv performer and teacher based in Edinburgh. She can usually be found touring the UK with her group The Spontaneous Players, gathered around a table playing D&D, or lying under a weighted blanket binge-watching all of the TV. Harmony Cox is a queer Midwestern essayist and humorist. Her work has appeared in McSweeney's, Electric Literature, Catapult and other publications. She is currently co-managing editor of The Belladonna. She lives in Columbus, Ohio with her cat Bandit. So next episode is the final show in this series and I have saved my favourite interview until last. We sit in a park in New York City with comedian, musical talent, mutual aid extraordinaire and poet Artie Golapudi. I'm a person who, yes, I've interviewed for talking about sexual assault, but also like I've had people come to my shows thinking I'm going to talk about sexual assault and I'm like talking about my diarrhea because I'm deeply human. Like not only am I a survivor, but I also have diarrhea. And like those are like a person can hold like multiple truths at the same time. You can keep up to date with The Antidote by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud or follow The Belladonna Comedy on Twitter at the underscore Belladonna's plural or find The Belladonna on Facebook or why not all of these things. Until next time.